Welcome to the Deck 4 Podcast. There's a companion newsletter on Substack. You can find us on Facebook and Tumblr, and our webpage is at georgefairbrother.com. Hope you enjoy the program. Hello and thank you for listening. In the early hours of January 14th, 1973, an Elvis Presley concert was broadcast live internationally via satellite from the Honolulu International Centre, Hawaii. Although the claimed viewing figures of up to 1.5 billion are now generally seen as a little inflated, the programs dominated television ratings and live and delayed telecast and then when repackaged for domestic US television in April. There followed a Billboard number one double live album, a top 20 single, and an immovable shadow over how the remainder of Elvis's career would be remembered. But by any objective estimation, it was a commercial and artistic triumph, a career highlight, and possibly one of the most significant entertainment events of the 20th century. But behind the scenes, it was anything but smooth sailing. There was intense pressure on everyone involved. There was corporate and creative politics in play, and at the last moment, the entire broadcast was nearly derailed by technical problems and possibly even sabotage. There are also some concerns about Elvis's appearance, his well-being, and his ability to rise to the challenge. All in all, the story of Aloha from Hawaii is a cracking adventure, and I'm delighted that Gary Wells is joining us over three episodes for another deep dive into a major milestone of Elvis's career. Gary, welcome back, and Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to you, sir. It's good to see you. In this first episode, we're going to be talking about the lead-up to Aloha from Hawaii, in particular the, um, the year of 1972, which was a huge year by any estimation. Multiple records were released that year, including Burning Love, which was a number two hit on Billboard, went to number one on Cashbox, and then actually was a hit all over again uh, as part of a compilation album, which they released released on the budget, the RCA budget label, uh, and so that went to number 22. There were 165 shows, two Vegas engagements, and three road tours. During the first road tour in the spring, the MGM cameras were um, covering that for another uh, concert documentary, Elvis on Tour. The interesting thing about Elvis on Tour, Gary, I think, is even though it was only two years after That's the Way It Is, it looked from a different era. It really did. It's it's funny you say that because through the years, uh, I've often thought that the the Elvis on tour looks like like deep into the seventies. Whether it's his physical appearance or or some of the different jumpsuits or some of the material he does, some of the candid behind the scenes things, it just looks totally different. And I'm not sure what that what that is down to. Uh, perhaps you know that's the way it is. Of course, he never looked better, so even six weeks later, he maybe would look different. And of course, the show was maybe tailored to a Vegas audience, so that might be different in terms of later on in performance. But yeah, the overall look, like you say, it's, uh, it seems like a lot of time has gone by and a lot has changed. Maybe, maybe not really much had changed in terms of anything, really, but the look definitely is very different. That was a, um, a very successful film. Um, it went to number 13 at the box office, according to Variety, and of course went on to win a Golden Globe as well. Now, in the summer, they were back on the road again in New York for 
80,000 people over four shows in Madison Square Garden. Once again, very positive reviews. Another hit record from that, um, a live album, uh, which went to number 11 on Billboard. Now, Gary, Elvis and Colonel Parker had been initially reluctant to play in New York, uh, believing that the nature of their show wasn't suited to a New York audience. Now, we know New York audiences could be very tough. Um, It was Jerry Weintraub, their promoter, that really persisted and convinced them. And, of course, it became you know, perhaps the biggest success in terms of live concerts apart from Aloha. Well, here's another interesting, you mentioned my man, Jerry Weintraub. Um, Here's another outsider, a savvy outsider who deals with other artists, other big artists, and he can apply his savvy to Elvis and the Colonel and the type of show that they put on and he saw a connection there. He saw a possibility of Madison Square Garden, whereas before Colonel had his thing where he would aim for the middle. I don't know, aim for the cow towns and the the rodeos and the fairs and the different types of venues throughout the country in the hinterlands in the smaller towns where they were assured a hit. So going somewhere like prestigious Madison Square Garden Maybe there was a little bit of reluctance or even maybe a lack of confidence or a lack of surety on Colonel's part that they could go over in such a classy place. But the big venues, you know, call for the big names with the big fan bases. And it's no surprise that it turned out really well. And uh, that's the kind of drag that Presley had. Him and Madison Square Garden did, in fact, go together quite well. So you would think at this point, just the general level of confidence and optimism would have been very high. So it was a perfect time, really, to be planning something, um, you know, just unprecedented in scale and ambition, which is really what this satellite concert was going to be. Now, we know that the Colonel came up with the idea in 1972, sometime in the first half of 1972, being aware of the increasing use of satellite technology and live news events. Now, he as we know, always dealt up the ladder. So the idea was taken to Tom Sarnoff, who was the head of NBC's West Coast operations uh, from 1965 to 77. Um, Now, he approved it. Um, The budget, $2.5 million, which was bigger than some feature films at the time, American Graffiti that we talked about last time, a case in point, and actually also more than $1 million more expensive than Elvis on tour. So, you know, they were very serious about this project from the start and obviously had very high hopes for its success. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, once once it was determined, yeah, I, I think we can make this work. Colonel, uh, as was his want, threw everything at it and uh, was able to attract the proper people and the proper conglomerates to make it happen. I'm sure that Colonel was thinking, if we're going to do this, As per usual in Elvis' world, we have to go really big, and we see that already in the planning stages. So just a little interesting aside about Tom Sarnoff. Uh, Now, he was the son of David Sarnoff, who is uh, an example of one of those remarkable 20th century American stories. Eastern European immigrant, he began working at American Marconi, recognised very early the potential of radio as a means of mass entertainment, became a pioneering president of RCA, orchestrated the founding of NBC as a radio broadcaster, and uh, David Sarnoff was also the driving force behind what would become RKO Radio Pictures, which was, uh, um, you know, the ultimate example of vertical integration in terms of controlling the production, distribution, and uh, exhibition. And that was actually a joint venture between RCA 
uh, the distributor film booking office of America and the Keith Olby Orpheum Theatre chain. And uh, David Sarnoff retired in 1970, um, a year before his death. So the Sarnoff family, um, you know, it's quite a pedigree that Tom Sarnoff had. Yeah, it's another fascinating story and the basis for a... a another series of podcasts about dynasties in, in Hollywood and in the entertainment business. It's a fascinating tangent we could go on about all the names that you could bring up and how some of these uh, second generation guys inherited things and you would you know maybe be skeptical thinking just because he's the son. But a lot of times the second generation take it, takes it to the next level and are perhaps even bigger visionaries than their than their dad. So it's a fascinating story and, a, and an interesting tangent we could definitely go down, yeah. So it's also an example of, um, I guess, at this particular time, you know, how Colonel, how Colonel Parker was able to use these contacts and friendships to get access to, you know, he, as we know, he was on first names with yes. Jim Aubrey at MGM, who was the corporate head of MGM and would deal with him, you know, in a very friendly and cordial way. And there wouldn't have been perhaps too many talent managers at that time with such access to the very top of these entertainment corporations. No, that's for sure. And I, I, I can't think of any and mainly because of, well, not be, well, at least in the, in, the, in the realm of longevity, just the fact that Colonel had been doing this with one successful property for so long, then he would have cemented these relationships. I mean, there might have been other managers who had uh, a successful stable of artists for a short period of time that might have penetrated deep within the ranks of the film studios, etc. But, you know, Colonel had done that in, in 56 and huh, almost every year since then, never mind Hollywood and the record business. So, he would have a, a, a full Rolodex of names and nobody that he would have called would have need needed to have been reminded of who he was. I mean, nobody forgets the colonel. So, it would have been a really quick first name greeting and let's get down to business. And like I say, he had the property. He had Elvis Presley. So, anybody that he called was going to be listening for sure. I think, uh, I think it's fair to say there might have been a bit of a love-hate sort of relationship there with some aspects of RCA. And we'll, we'll find out more about yeah. that in our final episode when we talk about some of the things that happened after Aloha and in particular a deal that was done with um, Elvis's back catalogue, which had major implications for the future. We move now to the second Las Vegas engagement of 1972. At the conclusion of that, there was a press conference with Elvis and Rocco Laganestra the president of RCA Records. This got a lot of network news coverage, um, and this was when the details of the satellite broadcast were first announced. Uh, Elvis's most significant contribution to that press conference relating to the upcoming uh, satellite concert really seemed to be shaking his head and saying he just perhaps couldn't comprehend the enormity of it. This is the first time that I've seen this myself. This is just the start, Elvis. And I really should start this conference off by congratulating Elvis because we will have two new firsts. The first, first, new first involves Elvis as the first performer to do a worldwide live concert via satellite. A real spectacular. And the second is that we will have a worldwide album by a satellite. All of this 
It's been made possible by the joint efforts of a lot of people, and especially including Colonel Tom Parker. Elvis, again, my congratulations for this spectacular. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It's uh, very hard to comprehend it because I, in 15 years, it's hard to comprehend that happening. You know. To so all the all the countries all over the world via satellite, it's very difficult to comprehend. A live concert to me is exciting because of all the. Uh, it's a really telling few minutes of footage, uh, but, but what it tells, I'm not sure. We could debate. Unfailingly polite game, you know, up for whatever is on the schedule that day and professional but not not seeming to be too into what's going on but still still a pro always his courtesy and uh, and good manners and you know generosity in terms of the way that he deals with questions and and the way he relates to people is is a real lesson i yeah. think for for everybody so um the announcement's been made and uh, of course uh, we need someone to steer the project the gentleman brought in Marty Passetta as producer-director. Now, he had directed the Oscars in 1972, would in fact go on to direct every Oscar, um, Oscars telecast until 1988. Very experienced with entertainment, variety um, and event television. He did have a connection with Hawaii, having worked with Don Ho on some TV specials. And uh, we'll find out that this relationship would pay huge dividends in the, the final very fraught moments before the actual broadcast. Now, Gary, Marty Pacetta, I'm just uh, interested in your comments in terms of the fact you made a great point in our um, previous podcast on Elvis, That's the Way It Is, about the importance of these key collaborators uh, that come in, um, you know, Chips Moman from American Studios, uh, Steve Binder from the comeback special, uh, Dennis Sanders, the director of Elvis, That's the Way It Is. You know, these guys are, you know, very good uh, in their own field. They're confident, they're tough, they don't compromise. And the collaboration in all of these cases came up really with something, you know, quite remarkable. And would it be fair to say, do you think that Marty Pacetta would actually fall into this category? Absolutely. And I'm thinking professional integrity. I'm thinking these guys, the names you mentioned, are some of the coolest players in Elvis world because they're not, they don't necessarily ride for the brand or play for the badge. They are, they're professionals that work in the business and they have their own thing. They have their own thing going on. They have their own careers going on. They've had lots of success with other artists other than Elvis and the Colonel. Thank you very much. I mean, Chip's Moment is a great example. Maybe one of the first. There might have been some film directors who uh, fit into this category. But Marty Presetta, I mean, think about the Bing Crosby specials I learned about. He did a dozen of them. And I mean, we can argue the comparisons, but I don't, I'm not sure if there's a bigger cultural historical figure in 20th century entertainment than Big Crosby and and who does he call 15 times whatever it was Marty Pasetta so uh, he's worked with everybody in the business Frank Frank Sinatra Bing Crosby everybody but the Beatles I guess really so here's a guy that doesn't want to dance to the tune doesn't want to do what 
Colonel wants, or even what Elvis wants, really, they have a vision. They're professionals. And guess what? When 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 this episode of their lives wrap, they have to go back into the business with their integrity intact. They have to get another job. They have to get the next job. They have to continue to work at the highest level in entertainment. And they don't want that on their CV. Oh, yeah, he did that with Elvis, but gosh, he really catered to them, and it's not really a good product. He took He took Elvis to a different level. He challenged him. And it's a fascinating little mini episode or blog post in there about these players who were not swayed by the aura, did a good job and challenged Elvis, took him to the next level. So Pacetta absolutely falls into that category. Now, Marty Pacetta went on. He had a, a remarkable career in television. As we said, he went on to direct the Oscars until 1988. He worked with the Beach Boys. He uh, Now, unfortunately, he, he did meet with a, a very sad end in 2015, yeah. aged 82, in, in, in a quite a, a freakish road traffic accident. So this is from Variety, May 22nd, 2015. Pacetta was struck by a car he had just exited in La Quinta, California, Riverside County. He died at the scene. The driver uh, had stopped his vehicle to drop off Pasetta and another passenger, according to the Sheriff's Department. The driver went to exit the vehicle, but accidentally left the car's transmission engaged, causing him to crash into his passengers. Marty Pasetta um, was killed um, sadly, and the other passenger was seriously injured. And I gather the driver was arrested for drunk driving. So it's a, you know, it's, a, well, I guess any end is sad, but that is a particularly sad end for Marty Pacetta, unfortunately. Yeah, that's a, a tough way to go. The guy, you know, works hard all his life, makes it to 82 and, and ends up dying in such a, a freakish, sad, senseless avoidable way. So that is a shame for Marty. So Marty Pacetta is brought in and uh, he was not initially told uh, who he would be, who would be the star of the program. He was asked if he would like to produce and direct the first entertainment global satellite broadcast. He, of course, said yes. And he really didn't find out who he was going to be working with until November. And uh, he went to um, an Elvis concert in Long Beach. Now, in some interviews, he had misremembered this at seeing Elvis in Santa Monica, but it was actually at Long Beach Arena that he saw Elvis to get a feel for the show. Um, now, Marty Pacetta thought that the music was strong, but the presentation of the show was boring and he was sufficiently concerned to go to NBC management. He was interviewed by the Palm Springs Desert Sun in 2013, and this is what he told them. Talking about Elvis, he said, he stood there like a lump. He didn't do anything. I went back to NBC and said, hey guys, what am I going to do with this guy? Uh, it doesn't look like he's going to move. Uh, and uh, the management apparently replied, uh, that's your problem. Um, now, we should also just mention, Gary, that in other interviews, Marty Pacetta's language has been a little bit softer. For instance, where in the uh, Palm Springs Desert Sun, he's quoted as saying, that's your problem, or the management is quoted as saying, that's your problem. In other interviews, in the same context, he said uh, that he was just granted freedom to, to do what whatever he wanted to do. So his language has been a little bit softer in some other interviews. But then, of course... He meets with the Colonel Parker, and uh, that was not an easy meeting because he had, uh, Marty Pacetta had worked on staging designs and lighting, and the Colonel fairly robustly um, rejected all of these ideas. Marty mm -hmm. Pacetta mm -hmm. then 
uh, not to be dissuaded, asked to be, uh, you know, to meet Elvis personally and put these concepts to him, which he did. Now, Gary, there was a famous meeting involving the Memphis Mafia, sunglasses inside, guns on the table, quite literally, and uh, a happy ending. Um, can you perhaps talk us through this meeting? Well, it's one of those times you, you want to see filmed by somebody good at such things. I mean, and it is a great tale, uh, Elvis World, I mean, with the boys. And who knows what they were thinking? I mean, how many times had somebody met with them and it was some clown and it didn't work out or whatever? And it was all a game to them, no doubt, these southern boys who found themselves in Wonderland all of a sudden. And their leader is fearless. He's unique, to say the least. And the guns, you know, he was a big gun guy, so they're big gun guys. The sunglasses, the intimidation, it was a game. And like I say, they don't know. They're probably assuming, oh, here we go again, somebody. But when Marty ends up not being one of those, when Marty ends up challenging Elvis, it was it, it, it was fascinating, and it'd be great to see that. Um, Marty was blunt with Elvis and said, look, man, I mean, you need to lose weight. You need to, I need to... Th- to, to know that I'm working with somebody with who's into it, who's dynamic and ready to perform because this is going to be historic. And, uh, you know, I, I, word around town is you're pretty good at this. So, let's see that. And he, he probably thought, you know, what am I going to do? Just kowtow to these guys and be intimidated? Or, or am I in a business and doing a job here? So, he challenged Elvis and Elvis's reaction, great part of the story. So, Marty Pesetta recalls uh, Elvis sat straight and the guys on either side of him took out their guns and laid them on the table. And if you don't think I was scared, you're crazy. And he, uh, Marty Pesetta, then says, uh, Elvis jumped out of his chair, grabbed me, put his arms around me and said, you're the first person who was ever honest with me. I will lose the weight for you. And uh, Elvis also said, we'll make super magic uh, for the tube together. Um, And as to the colonel's objections, uh, Marty Pesetta said, Elvis said to me, the colonel controls my business. I control my creativity and my music and my show. He has nothing to say about that. You will deal with Joe Esposito. So poor Joe a very tough job he had at times being the uh, sort of you know the mediator between all of this but uh, <laughs> so he was sort of stuck in the middle again well it's funny i think of uh you know something like albert einstein in in a third grade math class i mean elvis in entertainment he could do anything had done everything and you know er- things got boring to him pretty fast because i can blow the roof off a showroom in vegas in my sleep and this is too easy so Meeting a guy like Marty and Marty throwing the gauntlet down, it, it challenged, just like Binder and Molman before him, they challenged him and he must have been right up for it then and like you say, jumped up and hugged him, probably out of sheer, he was thrilled, he was thrilled, here's a guy who's going to challenge me and take me to the next level. Let's get it on. So that's an exciting part of this story for sure. Um, We should also just mention uh, the choice of location. Um, Hawaii obviously had uh, benefits in terms of geography for the the time that the broadcast would go out. But there was a, a close relationship there dating back to 1961. There was a lot of affection for Elvis because of the benefit concert he did to raise uh, money for the USS Arizona Memorial. And of course, the three movies that he made there. Can you perhaps give us a little sense of the relationship between Elvis and Hawaii? Well, interestingly, I I can imagine it came about fairly accidentally and strictly from a business standpoint. I mean, a script, you know, we're going to go to Hawaii to make a movie, Blue Hawaii. We're going to, you know, it's, it's a 
it's one of the 50 states. It's still within the country, so we can all go there and and, and work and uh, film on location, which is always huge. Uh, and Blue Hawaii being so incredibly successful, the film and the soundtrack. And with with the with the the Arizona concert happening at the same time, it cemented relations there. They, I'm sure, Colonel and and even Elvis to some extent formed connections and and business connections. I mean, but certainly a love. I mean, Elvis and his gang would certainly, I could see them certainly latching onto a place like Hawaii, loving such a tropical place that was within the country. So that was. That was cemented from from that point, and then of course through Girls, 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 which I grew up having really no idea that it was taking place in Hawaii. I mean, you might think I'm an idiot because of the location and look at how beautiful this place is, but it's never actually mentioned in the film. So I, I you know, I don't know how you're supposed to know that, especially as a young kid like I was. And then. And then Paradise Hawaiian style later on. So, you know, Hawaii was a vacation place. It was a business place. It was a place where he had Colonel and, and Presley both were making connections. And let's face it, Hawaii, I mean, it's a wonderful tropical holiday place to go within your own country if you're American. So it made perfect sense. And as we'll get into, I suppose, geographically for a satellite thing, that point on earth made good sense too so it's, it's all coming together hawaii and hawaii becomes this place an actual physical place in elvis world that that resonates with the fans and it did with with presley uh, himself so the third of the uh, three movies that was made in hawaii was paradise hawaiian style and, and that was probably the that i think is probably the the first elvis movie that i i remember seeing and um you know i loved it because of the the cars and the the helicopters and and just you know that was all fantastic but one thing that always fascinated me there were times that it seemed to be almost more a star vehicle for the child singer and entertainer Donna Butterworth and it was almost got the idea there were places oh, that no. Elvis were <laughs> that um, Elvis was consigned into a bit of a supporting role as as she it looked like they were really trying to build build her up in that and I just you know wonder what the colonel thought of that <laughs> head shaker head and you had to go there Donna Butterworth yeah colonel colonel normally so good at this like he bristled when when gorgeous Anne margaret had screen time but he lets this go on i mean he must have been at the tables in vegas maybe he missed this or something <laughs> but few people know but james shigata his co-star who met an untimely end in Die Hard later on. Uh, he was a popular singer in Japan. He was known as the Frank Sinatra of Japan. Okay. So here's this film with two major singers, yet Donna Butterworth is handed the mic. Yeah, what a nightmare. So I'm not sure what happened there, and it really suffers, but it ties in with that colonel plan for Elvis and Hollywood, family entertainment, take some, uh, make something that the whole family can go and see and, you know, a, a kid singing, what's cuter than that? You know, what? A, so many sitcoms add the baby to the cast later on. So that was obviously what was going on there. But the film, the film kind of suffers because of that. It's inexplicable. And let's please, let's move on from Donna Butterworth. <laughs> Okay. Well, we will actually move on to Hawaii because in November of 1972, uh, Elvis was there for three shows the, uh, at the same venue at the Honolulu International Centre uh, on November 17th and 18th. 
the shows were reviewed by Wayne Harada, a writer for the Honolulu Advertiser, and he would go on to review the Satellite concert and write a really a wonderful review of that. Some of his lines, I think, have sort of become the official or the definitive account, and we will go through Wayne Harada's review of that show later on. But um, this is what he had to say about uh, Elvis in Hawaii on November 17th and 18th. 1972. Elvis Presley remains one of the most electrifying showbiz marvels, an incandescent musical force who's a legend in his own time, and the 26,000 fans who took in his three sellouts at the HIC Arena over the weekend will long remember Presley's mystique, the charisma, and that indelible animal magnetism. And, Gary, I'm pleased to say he even had some nice things to say about Jackie Kahane, um, who was the warm-up comedian, and he got a very, very hard time in New York, um, Jackie Kahane. Often uh, was the, the brunt of some negativity in the critical reviews, but Wayne Harada was pretty happy with him. Comic Jackie Kahane turned out to be a pleasant opening surprise. His gags are witty, timely, and above all, clean. And unlike so many others, Kahane quits when he's ahead, never overstaying his welcome. So it's nice that poor Jackie, who had perhaps one of the toughest jobs in show business, um, it was nice that he he got uh, credit there. Yeah, you're the guy that stands between Elvis and his adoring fans. I mean, what a trooper, Kahane. So, interesting that he even got some some a paragraph spent on him in the review. So, that's good. Get some love for Jackie. A couple of days after the concerts, there's another press conference um, at the Rainbow Rib Room at the uh, Hilton Hawaiian Village Hotel. Uh, and uh, the, announce was, the announcement was made there that the show would benefit the Kuili cancer charity. As ever, Elvis was, um, you know, looking very relaxed but unfailingly polite. The concept of the benefit for the Kui Lee Cancer Fund was at the request of Eddie Sherman, who was a very well thought of uh, entertainment writer for the uh, Honolulu Advertiser and various other publications. He said this, I had started the Kui Lee Cancer Fund through my column for a doctor at the University of Hawaii doing cancer research. Lee was the legendary songwriter who died of cancer at 34. In the TV concert, Elvis sang Kui Lee's most famous tune, I'll Remember You, to millions of global viewers. Thanks to Elvis and Colonel Tom Parker, his manager, I received for the fund a check for $75,000 from the live concert gate. The audience was allowed in via their own contributions. Some kids saw the show for only 10 10 cents. The next day, Elvis and the Colonel took out full-page newspaper ads thanking Hawaii. Uh, now, uh, Eddie Sherman um, passed away in 2013 at the age of 88. It all, it's all starting to come together. It's, um, and it's, it's a great part of this whole thing that it was a, a charitable endeavor and it wasn't it wasn't even a generic or even a worldwide sort of thing that we've all heard of and we all know of it was very specifically hawaiian honoring somebody very specifically hawaiian kui lee and you know the money generated there in hawaii stayed there and benefited people went where it should have gone and it's a nice part of this whole story that it was done for charity and the kids getting in for 10 cents what a nice footnote people were you know encouraged to give what they could it was it was a donation thing so it's all starting to come together and everybody's starting to look not that they're doing this for this reason, but to look really good and that this is not just let's make a bag of money, let's do a satellite show, but let's benefit something. So that definitely is uh, not, you, you can't overstate that. That's a nice part of this whole story and it, it, it bears talking about definitely. So we're now uh, 
in January 1973, and uh, Elvis actually arrived in Hawaii on January the 9th, day after his birthday. Now, he was uh, airlifted by helicopter from the airport to the uh, Hilton Hawaiian Village, where there was a filmed greeting uh, by the fans. Um, he also uh, had a few brief words with local media. Coming up to get laid from the crowd. Hey, Elvis. How are you? I'm how are you? Welcome back. Thank you. Nice to see you. you Glad to be back. Thank Happy you very birthday, much. one day later. Thank you very much. Nice, nice reception, huh? Yeah, very, very nice. Yeah. Yeah. How long are you going to be in town this time? Uh, well, uh, about a week, I would imagine. Uh, it's going to be a big show Saturday. Oh, it's Sunday morning. It's, it's got to be. I hope it's good, you know. I'm sure it will be. I'm going to do my best. Elvis, you got a lot of people here want to give you lays and say hello to you. Okay, fantastic. The biggest one since Alaska. It's the biggest thing I've ever done. Yeah, I'm trying. Thanks, Appreciate it. Now, this was all set up, of course, but even though it was, the excitement on the faces of the people waiting there is genuine. And as we've seen in other places as well where fans are gathering, it's not just the women that are getting a little bit overexcited. You know, there's some very big, happy smiles and a lot of excitement on the faces of the guys in, in the in the crowd as well, isn't there? Sure, yeah. I mean, <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to watch and I'm thinking, you know, well, sure, they're happy and smiling. Look at them. They're in Hawaii. The guy, look, at just walks out of the ocean, cross the beach. He's got his shirt off. He's happy already. But Elvis coming in, yeah, the guy's people in general just went over the moon and guys weren't immune to that they were right into it too it's fun to watch him arrive there it's really exciting now we start to get a sense of just the pressure that um marty Pacetta and his crew are under and of course we, we you know we write history backwards so we know that it was a massive success and we know that it was a ratings triumph that we we know that it just went off flawlessly you know in the days leading up to it there were no guarantees just the the pressure that uh, everyone was under it's just you know short of being a general in an army or being a surgeon saving lives you cannot imagine someone under more pressure than marty Pacetta in these few days can you no, and I mean it's fascinating some of the some of the facts that you brought up that we'll get into the things that he had to deal with. But I mean this is this is what you know Marty when he wakes up in the morning. This is probably what he he lives for. I mean maybe he didn't expect it would be this difficult or get this crazy. But you know the ace was in his place and he was ready to put out the fires and to direct the troops as you say. So yeah, but definitely a monumental undertaking as all historical things are. But the right people are. If the right people are in place, you know, it comes off and Marty was the guy for sure. Okay, so a huge amount of um, studio equipment, you know, the lighting rig, the stage design, all of this reduced the capacity of the um, Honolulu International Centre by over 2,000. So the actual in-person audience for the dress rehearsal concert and the satellite concert would be 6,000, a couple of thousand less than the actual capacity for a normal concert. It's interesting when you look at the staging and the lighting, which is just just works so incredibly well. You can understand why Marty Pacetta was a little bit concerned having gone to um, Long Beach because, and we'll actually put a, a, a picture of this uh, in, in the newsletter, the usual Elvis stage in an arena, essentially they would just plonk a stage on the arena floor. There'd be seating behind the stage. Uh, they'd hoik the speakers on chains 
up to the ceiling so it wouldn't impinge on seating. Really, by the time they put the orchestra and all the musicians and the backing singers onto the stage, there wasn't a huge amount of room to do anything. It's really just, certainly by stadium shows today, it was such a rudimentary basic setup. It really was. And things were different in Elvis world, as we all know. But I'm even thinking of the, uh, you know, album covers thing. They were just portraits and his name was not, not even his last name. They're thinking, why make the effort? Stage, stage show, lighting. Why? Elvis walks out, the place goes bonkers. Kids don't care what, what the stage looks like. So let's trim it down. Let's keep it simple. Just get Elvis to walk out there. We're going to be successful here. But Here's where a guy like Marty Pacetta, who works on the outside, knows, well, yeah, but you could be doing this. Like, you're appealing to Elvis's fans, but if we jazz it up with a stage, with some lights, Elvis is going to have appeal across all borders everywhere. People who are fans of other artists are going to see Elvis, you know, looking at least in a setting like other bands and groups are, and he's going to look contemporary because he can take care of sounding and, and, and being contemporary. But this is why a guy like Marty is, is crucial. Because yes, you can nail a few boards together and still have you know, a successful concert. But let's, let's move forward. Let's get with the times. And let's put on a good show. Again, Marty Pesetta. On January the 12th, they did a full dress rehearsal which was taped as a sort of a, a backup just in case there was uh, something went you know catastrophically wrong with the um, satellite broadcast. There were also sound checks and rehearsals. You know, Elvis was, you know, in later years, Elvis never turned up for a sound check and in fact never rehearsed, but, uh, or very rarely rehearsed and they tended to work up new songs on stage with sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But obviously for something this momentous, he's very, very conscientious. He's there for the rehearsals and the sound checks. There were some very, very serious problems as we get very close to showtime. And uh, this once again is from uh, Marty Pesetta's interview um, in the uh, Palm Springs Desert Sun. A day before the broadcast, it was discovered that someone had cut the power lines going into the auditorium. Now, in other reports, um, they actually say that they lost power because they overloaded the um, the auditorium power with all of the studio equipment. But Marty Pesetta in this interview specifically says someone cut the power lines going to the auditorium. Wow, that's... Uh, you know what? Let me just peel back the layer a little bit. Here's Marty Pesetta later on in life. Out in, out in Palm Springs, out in the desert, and some savvy newspaper man knows he's got Marty living in the area. Let's go talk to him about Aloha. That's cool. So Marty recalls somebody actually cutting, I don't know, George, I remember Peter Noon of Herman's Hermits interviewed Elvis on the set of Paradise Hawaiian Style, fishing for a compliment, asked Elvis what his favorite group was. <laughs> And Elvis famously answered the, the Los Angeles Police Department. So maybe, maybe Peter Noon, uh, maybe he held something from that. Maybe he has, maybe he had some, some contacts down there in Hawaii. I don't know. I don't want to blame Peter Noon, but I'm just throwing it out there. There was some bad blood there. So we're we're working on a screenplay here, George. I mean, this this is fascinating stuff went on here, and and I don't know who would play Marty Pesetta, but the guy had a lot to deal with. Unbelievable, right up to the very end. It's an incredible adventure story. We mentioned earlier on Don Ho, the Hawaiian entertainer. Marty Pesetta had worked with Don Ho on um, some television specials. Now, this was one of the contacts, uh, and you alluded to the importance of this earlier, but the Don 
Ho connection was critical because when they discovered that the power lines had been cut, the first person Marty Pasetta called was Don Ho. So um, Don Ho and Marty Pasetta said, uh, Don Ho managed to get people out of bed. They came and they fixed it all just in time. Once again, from the Palm Spring Desert Sun, the day of the show, we discovered that the backstage equipment was creating a humming sound. So once again, Marty Pacetta called Don Ho. Very short notice. Don said, call the Navy. Virtually straight away, they had a truckload of lead sheeting that the Navy actually brought over. They managed to use this to insulate the noise and uh, to use Marty Pacetta's words, we got our sound back. So Don Ho was really a absolute critical player behind the scenes. I'm not sure that his role has ever really been sufficiently acknowledged in that he pretty much saved saved them all from catastrophe. I'm telling you, and you got, you, my mind is reeling. You even said it, the Don Ho connection. That'll be the name of this screenplay that we're going to write about Don. Picture him sitting in there in Hawaii. He's <laughs> yes. legend. He runs the <laughs> islands. He does what he wants. And if you're at this point, if you're having an entertainment situation in, in Hawaii and you need help, Don Ho. So Don Ho gets the Navy out of bed and, and mobilizes the Navy. The Don Ho thing, you're right. You know, like this is, this hasn't been talked enough and uh, talked about enough. And Don Ho major player, godfather type. This is half a Hawaiian mob movie or something where Don yes. is the Don and he can make things happen. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Finally, after all of this, January 14th, uh, 12.30am and uh, they're off and they're being broadcast right around the world. But there's one last little disaster, Marty Pacetta again in the desert sun. Then at the start of the show, my technical director froze on me. I had to cut the first part of the show. He was so nervous. So we don't know how much was missed, if anything was crucial. But, you know, I guess that once again is just um, indicative of just how frayed everybody's nerves were and just how much pressure they had been under. But right to the very end, George, eh? It's, uh, it's uh, crazy. We are at showtime now. It, look, in our next episode, we are going to really uh, talk in detail about the dress rehearsal show and the satellite broadcast, but probably just worth mentioning one of the real iconic aspects of um, Aloha from Hawaii, which was the the uh, jumpsuit. I'm referring here to ElvisConcerts.com, which has got a huge treasure trove of stats and trivia and information. There were two almost identical eagle-style jumpsuit belt and cape combinations made. Now, we know these were not cheap. $2,500 for the belt alone. Now, that's, you know, quite a bit of money now, but in 1973, it was a lot more. Of course, designed by Bill uh, Ballou, who um, uh, designed Elvis's um, stage attire. Both the suits were worn. The, the rehearsal show suit was slightly bigger than the other one, and this, this suit also got uh, an outing in some subsequent shows over the next couple of years. Um, three belts were made. The first one was never worn on stage. Um, Elvis gave it to uh, Jack Lord. Um, the second belt was worn during the two Aloha shows and disappeared into the audience uh, at the end of the show, um, as did the cape. So that might have sent one or two hearts fluttering um, in Elvis's group about the amount of money that had just been hurled into the audience. For sure. Sure, yeah, always the giver, Elvis. You know, people 
kill themselves making something, spending lots of money, give it to Elvis. Elvis gives it to somebody walking by. So that fits in with Elvis world for sure. And we'll be back in episode two where Gary takes us on a fascinating journey into the music and also the spectacle. That was the dress rehearsal concert and the satellite concert as well. Please stay with us after the credits. We just have a brief chat about some of the more eccentric moments in Elvis on tour. Don't forget the newsletter on Substack. You can also follow us on Tumblr and Facebook. Our policy for the fair use of copyrighted material for commentary and critique is at the Deck 4 webpage. Thank you to Steve Collins for tech support. Thank you to Gainesville for our theme music. And thank you for listening. Original music by Gainesville. Keeping the spirit of Tom Petty alive in Europe and playing great classic rock and roll. Check them out at gainesville-band.de and link to their socials. The Deck 4 podcast is also brought to you in association with tellmewheretogo.com. If you love travel, now more than ever, it's important to listen to the experts. The Armstrong and Burton book series, Dark Secrets Haunt Powerful Families in 1980s Britain, available from Amazon and book retailers everywhere. Find out more, link to the Deck 4 web and Facebook pages and subscribe to the Deck 4 newsletter, all at georgefairbrother.com. When we were talking about Elvis, that's the way it is in our um, earlier podcasts, we were talking about some of the eccentricities and some of the um, fan interviews. And, and something that struck me when I watched Elvis on tour again, just preparing for this, the difference in the way that the fans were represented in Elvis on tour versus Elvis, that's the way it is. It struck me that in Elvis on tour, uh, when they're talking to the fans at the concert, the camera is on the arena floor and there's a group of fans around and you it's almost it's a it's sort of a conversation you know they, they're on the same level as the fans they're saying you know we we traveled all this way you know we sing Elvis songs in our spare time we've got all this memorabilia uh, and it's virtually a conversation and when they're at the uh, at the airport with the fans and at the hotels the camera is there with the fans and it's sort of almost we are part of this rather than in that's the way it is where it was almost like you know, we are examining you from an outsider's perspective. Is that a fair observation, do you think? I think so. Elvis on tour, a fan's eye view, uh, an interesting technique of just, you know, having the camera in amongst the people. And, you know, we're just shooting the breeze about Elvis. We just happen to be filming it and it's going to be part of a film. So in amongst the people, you're right. Whereas that's the way it is, does seem more of a dissertation. We're writing a paper on Elvis and that requires talking to some people so we'll we'll dissect them in a way and we'll film that and we'll 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 get the skinny from them in that way whereas Elvis on tour perhaps is funner more more loose and just the cameras is one of the fellas maybe and it's a little bit more grassroots and homey feeling which ties in with Elvis on tour the the, the non-performance parts the the backstage the running through the corridors the inside the the limos it's more like you're hanging out you know with Elvis so it, it does have an appeal Elvis on tour because of some great performance footage yes but there's that real as as much of as much a behind the scenes thing as we ever got of Elvis Presley maybe you get it in Elvis on tour some very funny outtakes from that as well that you can see on YouTube that you know unbroadcastable 
probably in any other uh, in any other sort of yeah. medium but uh, they're very yeah. good but um, also the eccentricities now we talked at length about some of the quirkiness in that's the way it is but Elvis on tour was not without its little eccentricities and I'm, I'm thinking in particular in Dayton at the hotel they've bailed up this very nice um, quite elderly gentleman very very polite nice gentleman he's sort of got a bit of a deer in the headlight sort of look and they're relentlessly interrogating him about which door Elvis is going to <laughs> come through and you made a yeah. great point too uh, with um, uh, that's the way it is about this you know they interview these people not a, not a name on the screen no contact we never find out who they are and you yeah. know they just come in make their cameo and disappear and we when they've gone we're none the wiser we're, we're, we're left to make assumptions. I mean, assume, I'm ass, assuming this guy works there. Maybe he's lost looking for the restroom. Who knows? We, we don't know that. And the poor guy, like, he's trying to figure out what's going on. And, and I, I'm just, you know, they leave this in the movie. It's almost as if we'll interview somebody yeah. that could be something great here, and they're almost prodding it out of him, whereas viewers are screaming at the director, you're not going to get it here. You're not going to get it from this guy. Move on. But, you know, he prompts him, can you can you point to the door? Oh, which door? Well, the guy lifts his arm up. Like, it's just riveting theater. I don't know what's... And maybe that was... Maybe that's what got them the Golden Globe. The human element of the poor guy. Deer in the headlights is a, is a polite way. The polite way of saying the guy doesn't have a clue what's going on. Uh, one thing that is a little instructive in that is that uh, he is just as excited as everybody else that Elvis is coming to town. So that's uh, it's a, it, it seems like a, just a very, very nice sure. warm gentleman. Now, the other one that um, is a bit of a mystery, they're at the airport at Roanoke and uh, they've got the mayor for the civic reception as Elvis arrives. And there's this paper, <laughs> this paper bag full of money that has apparently been fleeced from the fans by some kids and, and uh, the mayor sort of got this paper bag of money and is we're going to donate it to the Salvation Army and someone calls out from the crowd Mayor, are you going to give that money to charity or are you going to keep it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah, the mayor, I mean I don't want to throw him under the bus or bes besmirch his family, but I mean looking shifty and you know, that is a paper bag I mean, that is classic Hollywood if you want to make a guy look like a thief Give him a paper bag of money. Again, it ends up in the film. And it, talk about deer in the headlights. Money? Uh, yeah. Uh, let me think of a charity everybody knows. Uh, Salvation Army. Yeah, it's going to the Salvation Army. Yeah, well. And then it gets actually even stranger because he um, he goes onto the plane uh, to present the key to the city to Elvis. Now, Elvis, of course, as always, warm, polite, very, very... Uh, attentive and nice and the mayor hands him the floral guitar as the present you're 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 unraveling some mystery for me because as a kid growing up watching this i thought what is happening here did he actually say because you've never played a guitar we're giving you this floral guitar like it's a pretty weird thing to say anyway but then elvis either has deliberately misheard him or has genuinely misheard him and says no no i played here several times i played in roanoke when i when I was first starting out. And uh, it's just quite odd. You make a good point that Elvis, maybe he did mean or Elvis misheard him. No, no, I've played Roanoke before. So that is really surreal, very odd on many levels. And of course he breaks the guitar. And my favorite though is, is Elvis winking at the boys and joking afterwards singing, carry me back to old Virginia. Oh, good stuff. That's, that's classic. 